This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent licensed professional for assistance. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. If you are a caregiver, this show is for you. It's designed to provide information and offer resources for caregiving questions throughout the lifespan. On this show, we're going to delve into food sensitivities and allergies. On a personal and actually unscientific basis, it seems to me that we are suddenly dealing with an increasing problem with children, adults, and seniors with food allergies. Children seem to have an increasing sensitivity to food items, especially peanuts. I deal with seniors who may appear to be healthy, but have an increasing sensitivity to dairy. Cooking for your family, cooking for guests has become challenging. Cooking for holidays sometimes has become actually difficult. For those who have the allergies, life can also be difficult. What should be normal events that are fun and enjoyable suddenly are something you have to think about and for which you have to plan. Birthday parties, holiday dinners, going off to college, corporate holiday parties, and dinner at someone's home, and the list goes on and on. Sandra Beasley is the author of Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, Tales from an Allergic Life. Sandra's writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and Psychology Today. Honors for her work includes a 2015 NEA Fellowship and two D.C. Commission of the Arts and Humanities Fellowship. Sandra writes from personal experience. It's interesting to me because she has actually lived this life. She refers to herself actually as the allergy girl, and she has many allergies that are severe and lifelong. Sandra shares with us today how she has not only survived all of these allergies, but actually thrived, how she has learned to navigate a world in which danger can lurk in even an unassuming corn chip. We're here with Sandra Beasley. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Ah, thank you. So, Sandra, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your personal story, not not why you wrote the book. I, I really want to understand the life that you've lived and how you've had to struggle with this and how you came to be able really, in your words, to thrive, uh, even though you have an amazing amount of allergies. Can, can you share that with us? Sure. Well, I was born in 1980, and so I was my parents' first child. They brought me home and tried to bond with me the way that any parent tries to bond with a child. They fed me, uh, but unfortunately, I rejected my mother's breast milk. I couldn't keep anything down. I basically lost weight so rapidly that they had to take me right back to the hospital. And nowadays, we would take that as a cue right off the bat to start looking for food allergies and intolerances. But back then, it just really, it took a minute to figure out what was wrong. 
And um, what my parents eventually discovered was that not only did I have a severe allergy to dairy milk, uh, I was rejecting breast milk, I couldn't tolerate soy milk. I mean, they basically had to, to resort to apple juice and, you know, we, we didn't have any of the, the modern day substitutes. But eventually they would learn that my allergies also included such foods as eggs, some tree nuts, beef, shrimp, uh, cantaloupe, honeydew. So again, thinking back to the 1980s, I was growing up in an era where food, which is so often used as a gathering point, as a social hub, was the thing that set me apart, that meant that I couldn't take uh, part in a lot of the rituals we associate with getting together as a family and early childhood. So how did they find out? I mean, that's a lot of food to be allergic to, that you were, for instance, allergic to cantaloupe and melon and shrimp um, as opposed to cod or salmon or whatever. <laughs> well, you know, ultimately, the way that food allergies are determined is through what's known as the oral food challenge or the food test. And that's the simple reality that... Um, they can test your blood level. They can test uh, the immune systems for certain food proteins. But at the end of the day, the only way we know for sure if someone is allergic for something is for them to ingest a very small portion, ideally in a medically controlled environment, and see what happens. Um, so in my era of childhood, they were doing what are called RAS tests, which, you know, if they had gone simply by all of the foods that I appeared to be sensitive to, I literally wouldn't have been able to eat hardly anything, including things like pineapple and rice that my parents knew for a fact I could and did eat all the time. So it literally had to be the painstaking process of one food at a time. And for some reason, I have a reaction to swordfish, but it's the only fish. I have a reaction to uh, to shrimp, but not oysters, not clams, you know, and, and you just, it's, it's a combination of being a sleuth and a scientist and a watchdog. And every parent who's ever had a child with food allergies knows it's just a painstaking, scary process. Sandra, this whole process that you're describing just as a parent just seems to me overwhelming. I mean, I would be scared to death. Um, to give my child just a, a little bit of something, not knowing whether he was going to go into shock or not. I mean, how did your parents handle that? Well, to be honest, I had a very limited, simple diet. Uh, you know, they made sure that I was receiving the necessary vitamins and other nutritional supplements. At the time, they made something cal called calglucon, which was a calcium supplement. And it wasn't until I was much, much older that I added a lot of the foods that people might consider fun experiments. I mean, I had no incentive to figure out if I could eat kiwis until I was in my late 20s. Um, um, but I think that what parents need to realize is although they can and certainly should uh, err on the side of keeping things simple, eventually they need to teach their children that to eat and to enjoy food as a way of entering the world is an important life skill. And so you have to just overcome that anxiety and certainly work with an allergist, work with a pediatrician, come up with a plan where people can feel secure, but do not uh, leave it so that your child is afraid to go to a restaurant, afraid to go to a carnival, afraid to go to a family gathering where food will be present. You just have to overcome that. 
All right. I still will say, as a parent, that's a really scary prospect to me. So hats off to your parents. Obviously, they handled this really, really well um, and probably a heck of a lot better than I would have. Um, I want to ask you a question about hidden ingredients. So you and I were sharing before we began that uh, I became vegetarian uh, a couple of years ago. And what I learned is I really had to look at food labels really carefully um, because, for instance, or I had to ask the waiter because, for instance, vegetable soup, I realized sometimes is made with a vegetable broth, but sometimes it's made with a beef broth. So are there other situations where you've really had to look for hidden ingredients Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the Federal Consumer Labeling and Protection Act was passed, what it did was it made sure that the what we call the big eight, the eight most common allergens in America, it made sure that those are clearly labeled. So if, for example, uh, casein or whey is an ingredient in something, the, the producer is required to say, uh, in parentheses, milk or to make clear that, that that word, which may be an unfamiliar word, is actually represents what may be a very deadly allergen for some. But that's only the big eight. And so take, for example, in Canada, where their, uh, their top allergens include sesame. Sesame is labeled there in that same explicit sense, but not here. Um, we don't necessarily, you know, people uh, get caught up in food trends, and they might not realize that when they go to a place that's serving ramen, the broth might be using a totally different protein from what's added in. Uh, and so it, it certainly can be difficult when foods uh, become trendy. Uh, mango all of a sudden started popping up everywhere. It was a flavor ingredient where it had never been before. And yes, you have to attenuate. You have to know what, uh, how, the, how the food is likely to be used, what color to look for, what texture to look for. For me, as much as I would love to um, work with vegan palates, my allergies to tofu and my allergies to cashew mean that a lot of the common substitutes are actually more dangerous for me, not less. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Actually, I was talking to someone recently who is vegan, and we were talking about baby food. And she was saying that she took a look at a jar recently of applesauce for my natural, supposedly organic baby food that actually had fish oil in it. And oh. she, she was absolutely shocked by it. Um, so you do, you're right. You do have to be very careful. Actually, you said something that I found very interesting that I didn't realize. So in other countries, do they have different, you know, so to say, big eights, food sensitivities and allergies that we have? Yeah, the incidence rate varies very much. And there's some belief that that may have to do with the, the culture of cuisine there. So, for example, in France, uh, hazelnuts or filberts, there's a much higher level of allergy to that particular type of nut than in the United States, where our nuts that tend to prompt the most allergy would be, uh, for example, uh, macadamias and almonds. Now, it's interesting that in France, you also have Nutella as a, as a pervasive product. And that ties into a theory by many that, you know, sometimes when a, a food is introduced 
at a much, much higher incident rate than others and kind of manipulated the way that, for example, peanuts have been manipulated in the United States for the sake of shelf-stable peanut butter. There's, there's at least one school of theory that suggests that may be part of why there's a subsequent rise in the incidence of allergy. Interesting. I never knew that before. Uh, Sandra, what about genetically modified foods? Well, I think that there are some studies needed uh, concern not because they've shown that we're not quite sure when you cross over a genetic coding from one food into another whether someone can have a subsequent allergic reaction. Uh, certainly those studies are just a few very specific ones. We need far more examples before um, we can necessarily allocate allergies as being one of the particular concerns for genetically modified foods. It happens that people who are uh, have allergies or whether that's something they're attenuated to tend to also be concerned about GMOs. And so those conversations often run side by side. Let's, let's talk about parties um, and holiday events and other types of uh, big social gatherings. So trying to accommodate adults or trying to accommodate children that, you know, have special food requirements may make, you know, let's say myself as a hostess feel uncomfortable. I mean, what are your suggestions for that? Because I know, for instance, when we first became vegetarian, cooking for holiday dinners, which I had done for many, many years and had down to a science, suddenly became stressful um, and I think when people invited us for dinner, suddenly they felt stressed, um, knowing that we were now vegetarian. I mean, what's your suggestions for that? Well, the thing is, there are some things that are so simple. And the moment that you get them in your head, you realize, wow, I can make this part of my everyday hosting practice in a way that is not only particularly helpful to someone with dietary restrictions, but it's just good practice in general. So things like always have enough serving ware so that every single dish can have its own spoon or its own fork. That way you're heading off cross-contamination. Think about whether garnishes like nuts or if you're making a, a salad and you want to have crumbled bacon on top, think about whether those things can be grouped to the side rather than adding them at the last minute in a way that doesn't really impact the flavor but means that for some of your guests, that dish becomes off limits. One of the things that a host or hostess might often do at the very last minute is sweep through the kitchen and grab all the containers, grab all the packaging and throw it away. That's so frustrating if all it takes is knowing what the ingredients are. So if you can just kind of quarantine those, those resources, think of them as resources, not as trash, just quarantine those long enough so that if a guest arrives who really wants to try something but needs to double check the ingredients, that's an option. Just little things like that. So you talked about having separate plates, cutlery, because of cross-contamination. I, I don't understand that. Well, the thing is, is that for those with food allergies, uh, it's not as simple as needing to avoid directly ingesting the food. There are sometimes really subtle ways that we can be exposed to a food that sets off a reaction. So, for example, the oil from one food, if you, if you use a spoon to stir something and then you use that spoon in, a, in another pot, that's going to transfer small traces of that first food in a way that for someone with allergies like mine is enough to cause a very serious reaction. 
So that's why we talk about cross-contamination. In restaurants, uh, one of the sources of concern is deep fryers. Um, a lot of people wrongfully believe that the heat of frying oil is enough to destroy allergens. It's not. So if you're having French fries, but the deep fryer right before you did mozzarella sticks, you might have a dairy reaction if that's in your system. So that's why cross-contamination is really something to think about. But you can do things, and people who keep kosher households have dealt with this for years, where you have, you know, one set of serving ware and one set of dishes that, that is safe for avoiding certain allergens, and then the other of it's just general use. So let me ask you what may be a very silly question, but since we're talking about cross-contamination. So if I have cooking utensils and silverware and, you know, plates, and they've run through the dishwasher, are they now clean? I'm, I'm secure that they're free of contaminants, and as long as I keep them separate, it's okay? Absolutely, yeah. There's no reason that a commercial-grade dishwasher with soap and hot water wouldn't be enough to properly destroy uh, any concerning food proteins. Where it gets a little trickier is things like cast iron cookware, things that you wouldn't run through a dishwasher that are traditionally hand-cleaned. And one thing that I've gotten in the habit of doing is if I'm going to someone's house I, where I know that there will be communal cooking, sometimes I'll grab a roll of tin foil. Because if there's grilling, if there's something that's being heated up in the oven, if I have any doubts at all, I can just lay out a sheet of tinfoil and know that my food is being cooked on essentially a clean surface that is still fully capable of transferring heat and getting a nice sear, etc. So do you tell your hostess ahead of time? I mean, how do you handle that? Um, I mean, if it's your friends, obviously you're just talking to them. But what if you're invited to someone's home for dinner or you're in a professional situation, you know, where you're going out professionally with someone for dinner? I mean, how do you handle that? Yeah, it's you definitely want to take into account the size of the group. Uh, sometimes even if somebody says that they can accommodate, you have to be realistic. If they're hosting a dinner party for 30 people, it's probably better to make sure that you have a snack or some food in your stomach beforehand. And it's probably better to angle things towards saying, what can I bring that will blend in with what's already being served versus asking that what's being served actually be changed to accommodate your allergies. But, you know, one thing that's delighted me is over the years, I've found that some people, particularly with smaller gatherings, groups of six or under, they really relish the challenge of working with someone's food allergies. It's not a limitation. It gives them something different to think about in terms of how they shape their menu. Oh, those are people who like to cook, Sandra. <laughs> As opposed to people like me <laughs> who find cooking already stressful. But sure. But actually, it, it's yeah, actually, it's good to know ahead of time. So are there special concerns surrounding seniors and grandparents? Yeah, it's difficult because uh, seniors, I mean, they probably are already aware of their allergies, although, again, they're coming from an earlier generation when allergies were not as quickly diagnosed or as widely known. But let's say they do know about their allergies. They still might be in situations where they're caught up um, amongst family, which is very loving, lots of kisses and hugs going around, toddlers running around with plates full of food. And you can have scenarios uh, where there's accidental exposure. I mean, a lot of 
people don't think about the fact that at the end of the night at a family gathering when everyone is kissing and hugging each other, for someone with allergies, that may mean puffy eyes or a hive on the cheek. So you have to really be considerate of that. Um, so make sure that if you, if you are hosting someone, anyone with food allergies, but particularly someone elderly, make sure you know what their allergies are as well as they do. Make sure that if they carry medications with them, like an EpiPen, you know where it's kept. And just make sure that there's a kind of general level of awareness that can be helpful and considerate. Actually, I find I speak to a lot of seniors these days that never had any allergies. And now suddenly they're saying that they're allergic, especially to dairy. That seems to be a big issue among people who are aging. Well, we certainly know that food allergies can arise at any point in one's life. Uh, and unfortunately, their level of severity can also vary. So it may be that they always had a mild issue with uh, tolerating or processing milk, but all of a sudden it's gotten much worse. Um, they might have, when they were younger, had minor eczema or psoriasis, not realized that might have been related to, to food allergy issues as well. But I think that it's very hard to give up traditions. And I think that the most difficult thing is when a food that you love and associate with being together all of a sudden becomes off limits. And so anything, you know, the, the good news about that is that there's so many more opportunities to substitute and to adapt recipes, it's particularly dairy. There's a thousand ways to work around dairy now in making, uh, you know, everything from gingerbread houses to ice cream. I mean, anybody who's had coconut sorbet knows that the the way they're able to use coconut milk it's pretty darn good it's pretty much like the real thing you're right it is so if a family member is hospitalized what are some special needs to keep in mind for those with allergies well they will be taken care of by the hospital staff but unless they're uh, unless the reason why they've been hospitalized is specifically related to food, there's actually a great deal of flexibility now in terms of visitors being able to bring in things to share. The issue is, is that well-wishers visiting um, someone who's hospitalized may bring things that they don't realize that person is allergic to. And if that person is in any way on medication or partially sedated or just doesn't have their usual level of awareness, it could be an issue. So it might just be useful to post a sign by the person's bed. They'll probably have something written around their wrist that lists food allergies, but something that's a little more visible, uh, just to prompt people to ask twice before sharing things. That's a great suggestion. Sandra, do you have any last thoughts for us that you want to share? Well, just be aware that uh, there are so many ways in which foods can be incorporated into the holidays, some of which are subtle, things like crafts. You know, the little kids might be making bird feeders and they might be spreading peanut butter on the pine cones without even thinking twice about it. So on one hand, you really do have to be paying a lot of attention. On the other hand, as I said before, it's so important to welcome food into your life, to not fear it. And if someone even like me who has a dozen serious allergies can come around and gosh, even work as a food critic and travel the world getting to taste different things. Don't close the door to that. Thank you so much. This was very, very helpful. And I learned some things today that actually I, I didn't know before. Sandra, tell us how to get your book, how to get in touch with you. 
Sure. My book is called Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, Tales from an Allergic Life, and it's widely available. You can buy it uh, online. Of course, I encourage you to support your independent bookstores. Um, I'm also a poet, so I have three collections of poetry, most recently a book called Count the Waves. And you can even sometimes find mention of, of my food allergies in my poems. I have a sequence called Allergy Girl from a book called Theories of Falling. So I write about uh, food allergies in a variety of settings. I regularly write for Gluten-Free and More, which is a great magazine that I recommend as a resource for those dealing with these issues. And find me on the web. I'm eminently Googleable. Sandra, thank you so much. I, I think you've really given a lot of great information uh, to our listeners, and I think you have a wonderful attitude. Um, it's really uplifting uh, and inspiring to listen to you. So, Well, thank you for the great questions, and I'm really happy to be in conversation today. Thank you so much. In closing, I want to tell you how much I appreciate hearing all of your stories and all of your comments and even your suggestions for future shows. So please keep writing to me at Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com or you can go to our other website, which is www.sarahcare.com. If you happen to be enrolled in or you have a family member who's enrolled in one of our Sarah Care Centers, let me know. I often visit the centers throughout the country, and I would be thrilled to actually meet with you. Thank you.